Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Daniel Major online. Daniel, how are you? I'm very good. Excellent. In fact, um, just got back from Niger, so I'm kind of jazzed up from a project site meeting. There you go. So you do some amazing work, and we talked a little bit in the pre-show, but why don't you share with the audience a little bit about you and the amazing work you do? Yeah, I'm a mining engineer by trade, which means I'm a a jack-of-all-trades master of absolutely nothing, um, which is our skill set. Um, but yeah, I've been in the mining industry almost 35 years now, uh, worked all around the world. Uh, I've worked in North America, South America, uh, in Africa, um, in Russia. Um, so, and now we're really, I'm back to where I started, which is the uranium industry and focus on developing, um, uranium projects in Africa. You know, it's a timely moment. Everybody's focused on clean energy. Uh, nuclear has got to be definitely part of that strategy for most governments around the world. And, uh, you know, we're part of that supply of the fuel uh, or intend to be part of that supply of the fuel going forward long term. Well, it's critical that we explore different fuels because, you know, the electricity grids that we've seen with all the massive growth is not sustainable. We know what it does to the environment. And of course, fossil fuels and, you know, the move away from that from, you know, a car standpoint, looking at, you know, different fuels uh, to you know, travel and, you know, in case in point, you know, the time of this recording, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, took off this, you know, this morning with his brother and a couple other people into space and they had Rivian vehicles take them to the launch pad. You know, so it's, it's just, you know, kind of a, a unique situation where you're seeing different fuels that are being used to do things. Uh, and it's, again, you know, you know, nuclear power, you know, obviously has been something that's been around for, for a while, but, you know, it's been very spotty in its application, but, uh, you know, the uranium mines and finding them, uh, is definitely something that, uh, needs to be done and organizations like yours, thankfully are out there, you know, doing that work. Yeah. I mean, the nuclear industry, it, you know, it had a very strong growth rate from sort of 1950s all the way through until the 80s. Uh, and then it's kind of went into a hiatus uh, for a period of time, but it's certainly getting back there. I mean, it's an industry that's massively regulated. I mean, a lot of the restrictions and costs and things are because of the massive amount of re- um, regulation on us. And, and that effectively has made it one of the safest forms of energy that's out there. That, you know, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate how safe nuclear energy really is. Uh, in compared to many things that you do in normal life, um, you know, uh, and I think the other thing that we're seeing, uh, and with regarding clean energy, particularly, and and what is becoming a realization is, you know, there is no cookie cookie cutter for this. You know, you cannot make one size fits all. If the wind doesn't blow in your region, you do not go for wind power. If it's dark half of the year, then you're clearly not going to go for solar. You know, you um, you're going to have to have different aspects for it, and and that's where nuclear is kind of fitting into it. Um, you know, people appreciate 
there's a cost to these things, but the cost to all of these things um, that are out there. Um, the one thing I was surprised at reading a report the other day is 95% of a nuclear reactor is actually recyclable when you finished, uh, unlike large parts of a solar farm, which are not recyclable like the panels. So, you know, they, I think the other thing, you know, we're seeing is that solid growth out there. There are some new areas. I mean, a lot of governments are pointing to hydrogen as a way forward. Hydrogen fuel, this is going to save the world. But you've got to create the fuel from something. Hydrogen as a fuel is actually energy negative. Um, so, you know, you want a, a power source that is energy positive to be able to make the hydrogen. And that's where nuclear definitely fits in. Um, it actually produces a lot of heat energy that we, you can use. Um, the other ones you're starting to see, shipping, um, nuclear shipping. Um, there was an article by one of the trade magazines in our industry Nuclear ships go twice as fast as coal-fired or oil-fired um, ships. Um, you only need to reload them every 16 years. So if you put 25% of the current shipping fleet, bulk shipping fleet nuclear, you'd have the same nuclear energy capacity as the existing nuclear fleet on ground. So that would be a doubling of the nuclear. So, you know, a lot of applications out here for nuclear. Uh, but in the short term, it's like super exciting uh, at the moment. Well, that's something I hadn't even thought about was, you know, the fact that those ships could go faster and obviously burn much cleaner in our supply chain. And we've seen supply chain challenges during this pandemic. Um, having ships that would have gone a lot faster would have mitigated a lot of those challenges, excluding the the boat that got stuck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, but you know, yeah, that, 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 I don't care what kind of fuel you have. When it's stuck, it's stuck. You know, maybe maybe the other ships to help pull it out could have got there a little bit quicker. But at the end of the day, yeah, the, we're, we're talking about fuel and energy, but we're, there's also a supply chain component which can is such a huge component to society and, and what we do and you know the the pitfalls of supply chain definitely came front and center uh in the early days of the pandemic for sure and so that application right there alone um uh, from a, again from a fuel standpoint from the environment it's a clean energy or cleaner than you know obviously coal or or oil um which yep. of course reduces emissions in in the atmosphere and of course then it cuts back on you know the loss of you know trees and and everything else that we're seeing because they're like well we got to you know, forest all these trees in order to build the things that we need to burn. Well, if we don't need to use those trees anymore, we can leave them be or plant more, which of course, oxygen is kind of an important fuel for us. And yeah. I, I think it, it helps keep the earth uh, a little healthier. Uh, so again, it, it, it just, again, there's a lot of reason why, you know, moving towards that uh, type of fuel makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, I think if you're looking at where we are today, I mean, I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's where it's really interesting, particularly those who kind of invest into uranium stocks, et cetera. You know, the problem we have now is that last year we consumed, the world consumed about 180 million pounds of uranium, uh, and it only dug 120 million pounds out of the ground. Um, and it met the gap by pulling down on existing inventories, um, particularly in the US where nuclear has having to compete, which it has been having to cheap, compete with cheap gas, um, you know, subsidized renewables. Um, you know, gas, oil, obviously oil prices have gone up, which will push gas prices up back up as well, which, which helps. Um, 
But, you know, to do that, they've pulled down inventory. At the same time, we've had a secondary market out there, which has been a function of spare capacity and the enrichment side of our business. That is now getting fuller. So that capacity is no longer there and people are pulling down their inventory. So, you know, between now and kind of 2030, that £6 million of secondary and inventory drawdown, one of the consultants is estimating will go down to £20 million. So now you've kind of got 120 to 125 million and you're now burning 190 and you don't have a gap. Uh, well, you don't have anything to fill the gap unless we bring new production into play. And and that's really the thesis long term of where we currently stand in, in the uranium industry is that the gap needs to be filled um, and nobody is willing to commit to capital unless we see much higher uranium prices than the currently out there at the moment. So. It's an interesting time. Definitely. And as the market has been in, in you know, all kinds of different things, commodities for sure uh, is impacting it. And of course, if capital investments aren't going in there, then they're not going to do it. They're not going to look for new mines and invest because it takes a long time. It's not like, hey, we found some. Okay, let's load it up in a barrel and then drop it off at the, you know, the processing plant and they'll make it whatever we need to use it for and away we go. Oh, no, it's a lot longer lead time uh, from the time you discover something to you know the, the actual application and and you know mining of that kind of stuff it's not something oh, absolutely that it- absolutely i mean the cigar lake mine took 23 years from discovery to construction i mean that's a that's you know that's a a whole lifespan you know coming through so you know that that is a big issue for us going forward as as an industry is exactly that point you know we have no capital really being spent uh we've actually got the opposite we're coming to a point now where older mines are reaching the ends of their days and are actually starting to close down it's been going on for a while i mean we had two closures this year gone for good uh we have another two due between now and 2030 one in Niger next to where we are in our, our projects and uh, the Cigar Lake mine itself in, in, in Canada. And these are big projects that just, that's it, they're finished. Um, they're gone and they need to be replaced as well. So there, there is a problem. Um, you know, and that's where, you know, Goviex, the company I'm the CEO for, Goviex, um, puts itself is that we have two permitted projects and permitting is a big problem in our industry, in the mining industry as a whole. You know, uh, it, just getting mines actually through the full permitting process is a long and laborious process in most parts of the world. Uh, in Niger, it took us six months um, to get the process. Not, you know, a, a different system, radically so. It's that, well, one, we're in the middle of the Sahara Desert, so there isn't a lot out there. Um, anyway, um, the government have much more control over the process, and we're in a fairly unpopulated um, part of the world as well. So, you know, our project in Niger, fully mine permitted, ready to go. Uh, our project in Zambia is fully mine permitted as well. And we have a third project, more an exploration project in, in Mali. Um, so, you know, that's where we sort of committed ourselves at the beginning of this year to finalize the, the detailed engineering and the feasibility study. Hopefully that will be finished in May of next year. And then, you know, we're expecting the uranium price where it is now to go from like 33 to $32 to $33 now. It's quiet this time of the year. So anyone looking at the uranium price over the summer should remember most of the utilities have gone off on holiday like everybody else, and they're not really trading at this time of the year. So it's usually a dip. Um, but we expect that steady price rise 
consensus forecast is looking at by 2024 at over $50. Now, that's a number that Goviex can get away with and look to start construction at the end of next year into 2023 uh, with production starting in 2025. So, you know, we're well positioned. It's a reasonable sized project. One of the benefits we have in Niger, we've got all the infrastructure there. We've had two mines next door to us, literally adjacent to us been running since the 1970s. Uh, and I, I visited one beginning of uh, last week, you know, world-class projects, you know, all the safety standards you'd expect in Canada, Australia, South Africa for a mine right there in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you know, fully up to spec. And I've always said, you know, Nigerians have been mining uranium for 50 years. They know how to mine uranium, um, you know, and that means we can use local labor, which is also really key and in countries like Africa to ensure that you're focused on local commitment uh, in many areas. Well, that's the big thing too, is, you know, there's parts of the world that we would anticipate would be rich in uranium deposits, but we haven't been able to access them because of government restrictions and all of that. So negotiating with those countries and utilizing local talent, I think is a big step in you know, kind of easing, you know, some of those restrictions on there in a way that obviously it benefits, you know, that country and that region, you know, from, you know, the fruits of the labor, obviously. And then of course, you know, your organization and, and other organizations that do work like yours to be able to, you know, reap the benefits and then, you know, the globe benefits from it. So uh, my hope is that as time goes on and, and the need for this is, is so critical that, you know, more governments, you know, across the, you know, the globe will, will recognize, okay, we, we've got some resources here sitting on, it's not going to do anything for us. So yeah. we need, we need to do something with this and, and, you know, partner up with, with organizations that know what they're doing, have done it, have done it for, decades utilize you know a combination of the local talent and you know train them on how to do it and and obviously you know bring in some outside help if you need to i think it's a win-win for everybody across the board yeah and i think that uh, that's an overarching comment for the whole of the mining industry and a lot of not just in places like africa but actually more important like places like the u.s canada uh, europe where you know, there's a lot of talk about critical metals needed, um, you know, and governments kind of want to go into batteries, they want to go into wind, they want to go into solar, and then they go, yeah, but we're reliant on China for all of our metals. What do we Oh, this is dreadful. But then when you've got projects in those countries, they make the process of permitting, environmental, social, etc., so difficult that it's almost impossible to get a mine off the ground in those countries. So I think that's a that's an aspect to Western governments particularly, which is, you know, if you want to promote these areas of clean energy, uh, even with nuclear and moving forward on the SMRs, the small modular reactors, you've got to provide the, the correct legislative approach to getting the job done. You know, you can't make restrictions so damn difficult that companies just give up trying to actually get there but at the same time you know and companies like our own you know we we're, we're very committed to following the rules that are out there and, and achieving things you know we have very strong attitudes to our impact on the environment the impact on the social people around us the impact on the health and safety these are all embedded 
into most mining companies now anyway. Um, you know, and mining can be done in a socially acceptable and environmentally friendly way. Um, but governments have to come on to our side as well and, and help us get there. So where do you see the industry in the next, I'd say, 10 to 15 years? Uh, do, you, do you see some some momentum and movement, obviously, with the commodity prices, you know, hopefully increasing in the next year or so? It'll help you do some investing. But, you know, what are some other other things that uh, maybe the public wouldn't be aware of necessarily that uh, will be a yeah. telltale sign that things are going to go well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think as governments have put stronger and stronger commitments out there for carbon emissions, the, the thing that you're seeing is many of them just put things out there that are outside the electric boundary of where they are, you know, like green hydrogen. And I think as they start to realize that things are not as achievable, I think this will point more and more back to nuclear having to be part of the story and to develop. Uh, as an industry, we've moved a long way forward with things like the small modular reactors. You know, these go from 10 megawatts up to 300 megawatts rather than the sort of 1.3 gigawatt size that's out there. So, you know, people like um, Exelon and et cetera in the US are now looking at taking out the coal-fired power stations, putting in small modular. So as you can see, Good solid growth on the, on the nuclear in the Western market as these SMRs start to get in. These are very much simpler developments from nuclear. They're unpressurized vehicles. They use convection heat only um, to run um, themselves rather than the pressurized big vehicles that are out there. If you look at the big vehicles developing, out, uh, Asia is still the growth area. China is going from like 50 gigawatts this year, 70 gigawatts by the end of 2025. 120 gigawatts by 2030, and then 240 gigawatts by 2040. So you've got an exponential growth out there of the big stuff coming through. You're starting to see the SMRs feed into um, Africa, particularly. Uh, Africa isn't big enough power grid-wise to handle the big reactors, but the SMRs very much. So places like Ghana already, Nigeria, are all trying to move down that nuclear flight path. The other nice thing about the small ones, they don't leave reloading until once every 20 years. So any risk of proliferation that people worry about, very unlikely, because they're effectively just a big Duracell battery. And then, as I say, things like hydrogen. I mean, there was an article I saw the other day. There's like four gigawatts of power for hydrogen at the moment in Europe, which requires something like um, 80,000 hectares of ground. Their target is 40 um uh, on hydrogen which means they need eight million hectares of ground just for hydrogen production forget about the electricity production they've got to offset as well so to go into energy stores so i think that's another area that we're going to see uh, nuclear very much get into is that hydrogen side and as i said your other aspects now things like shipping where you know the other options are sort of kind of you know gassing up tankers and things whereas you know, something as simple as, as nuclear reactors on board ships. And we have to remember that one, the US, uh, the British Navy, etc., already have nuclear reactors on ships. The aircraft carriers and the submarines are already nuclear. The Russians are building large nuclear icebreakers. There's one operating and three under construction at the moment, which are helping smash through the Arctic Circle to get shipping around that side as well. So nuclear on ships is is very doable. Uh, and as I say, its potential is massive uh, going forward for, for our industry as well. 
you know, the nuclear footprint is much smaller than, you know, all the, all the land requirements for the hydrogen. And it's like, oh, we still need the electricity too. It's like, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're trying to go clean. We're trying to kind of get away from the traditional electric side of things and go into something yep. a little bit different. So you're going to say, oh, we're going to add this new thing, but oh, we still need that. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. It's like, that's <laughs> not, that's not really clean then. You're just yep. adding. And of course, you know, the land requirements alone would require you know some massive redevelopment which is some amazing costs you know the thing about you know a nuclear facility it takes a rather small footprint and and in order to you know build them it's you know not as much time as it would be to build out a grid of something and and it's again one of those things where i see down the road Especially in areas where they've been ravaged by, let's say, a tsunami or, you know, some tragic tornadoes or things like that, where it wipes out entire communities and the power grid and everything else. You can put in a small uh, nuclear processing plant there to provide power for that community and get things up and running a lot faster than it's okay. Well, we got to build the grid for it. Then we build the houses and we did it. It would shorten the time for recovery on some things as well. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity and promise for this. I think the other thing that frustrates as well as an industry is that quite often when people are sort of anti the nuclear, they always point out the first thing class reactors that were built in Europe, which have struggled uh, and run over their budgets. But they never point to where the Chinese are who are building the repeats of themselves and have managed to bring in um, reactors well below the cost of those first in class um, within the budgets they were forecasting and have now got down to five-year construction times. So, you know, it's all very well to point at the, you know, the one, a first ever EPR that was being built in Europe saying, look, that's all reactors are like that. No, they're not. The Chinese have done what the French did back in the 50s and the 60s, which is just keep building the same thing over and over again. You know, and I think that's the other thing that's changed in our industry, which is where the nuclear, uh, the renewables guys have got to work through is renewable, you know, solar 15-year life. They've got to replace the whole thing and start again. So that profile has still got to come through, but you've already seen New growth is already starting to slow a touch, but you still got to replace the old stuff that's running out and falling apart and come through. Whereas with nuclear, we're now starting to see, because of the robust structure and the regulations that were applied, 40-year-old reactors are now just being pushed out to 100-year reactors because they can. They were so well built the first time under the regulations, were so strict on them that they can push them out to 100 years. So these are long-life assets when they get going um, and, and will be there. Um, you know, well past my time. Absolutely. And again, it's a technology that is proven and uh, eventually everyone will clue in and say, oh, wow, I guess we should have gone with this option that was already here. But sometimes we're, we're pretty stubborn in our ways of learning. That's for sure. So, yeah, Daniel, I love this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and this amazing work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go to the company website, um, which is uh, govix.com. That's uh, G-O-V-I-E-X.com. Straightforward. Have a look at our projects, the good work we're doing in Africa on CSR as well. Uh, it's all there on the website. Uh, definitely worth a look see. I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So, Daniel, thank you again for your time today and really appreciate this conversation. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. 
visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.